And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Keith Law. Welcome to episode 63 of The Keith Law Show, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. My guest today will be Dr. Elizabeth Hinton, the author of a fantastic new book, America on Fire, the Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. Before we get to Dr. Hinton, just a few administrative notes. I've had a couple of pieces already go up in the last few days, including a note for uh, folks who follow the our breaking news feed on the imminent call-up of Wander Franco, who's my number one overall prospect in baseball coming into the season. He is still my number one prospect. This is generally very exciting if you're a Rays fan or if you're just generally a fan of prospects. I will also have another mock draft up later this week. It is currently scheduled for June 24th. I have already begun working on it, which is an excellent sign that it might be finished on time. We are now, as I write this, three weeks away from the less than three weeks away, 20 days from the first round of the 2021 draft. And uh, things are not that clear, but I guess that's not to be not terribly surprising given the teams have not yet had a chance to get into their meeting rooms. Some teams have held regional meetings or cross-checker meetings, but not actually gotten into the room to make final decisions on who they're going to target in the draft. But in the meantime, I do have a piece up for subscribers to The Athletic looking at whether it is taking longer for top college prospects to get to the majors than it used to. The answer is no, but we actually found something else. Well, I was trying to answer that first question. And I will also have a post up at some point this week on a couple of prospects I saw when the Brooklyn Cyclones, the Mets uh, high A affiliate, which features three of the Mets top prospects, Ronnie Mauricio, Francisco Alvarez, and Brett Beatty came to Wilmington and faced off against the Wilmington Blue Rocks, who did throw a couple of their better pitching prospects while I was in the park. Evan Lee, and I don't know how he says it, Joan Adon, uh, who's kind of unknown among some of the Nationals pitching prospects, but probably should be better known because his stuff certainly deserves that kind of consideration. Finally, I have a bookstore event to announce. First one in quite some time, but I will be appearing at the Tattered Cover in Denver, which is uh, I've actually never been to, but I've heard about it for years. It's one of my wife's favorite independent bookstores in the country. They reached out, and on July 12th, which is three weeks from today, it's a Monday at 6 p.m., I will be appearing at the Tattered Cover to speak about mostly about my second book, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. I will sign your copies and hopefully take a lot of your questions, and I'll just really be looking forward to getting back to doing in-store events and meeting some of you in person. I feel like I've talked to you, so many of you, especially since the book came out. We've done Zooms. I've done Q&As through The Athletic. I've done stuff on my own site, but I haven't actually been able to see any of you and sign your books in person and thank you for purchasing it. So I'm really looking forward to that. You can head to the Tattered Covers website information. If it's not up already when you hear this, it should be up later this week. Now, it is my pleasure to be joined by Dr. Elizabeth Hinton. She is the associate professor and associate professor in the Department of History and the Department of African American Studies at 
some school in New Haven, Yale, I think it is. She's also the author of the new book, America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and black rebellion since the 1960s, as well as the earlier book from the war on poverty to the war on crime, the making of mass incarceration in America. You can find her on Twitter at Eliza B. Hinton. That's the easiest way to say it. Dr. Hinton, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Keith. I'm thrilled to be here. I should be giving you grief, though, because you left my alma mater up in Cambridge to go down to our arch rivals down in New Haven. It seems like probably a better position. So I don't know if you want to defend yourself. <laughs> well, you know, I have, not, I have nothing but wonderful things to say about my colleagues and time at Harvard and the students especially. They're wonderful. And um and, you know, I, I, I miss it sometimes, but very happy to be here at Yale and uh, to be a part of the faculty at the law school. Awesome. Um, so let's start. I, uh, I want to talk mostly about the, the new book, America on Fire, which I read. I actually got a copy from Midtown Scholar. Um, and Yay, oh, aren't they so great? I love that store. I can't wait to get back up there. I've actually done an event in the store and I've done a few virtual events through them and they're fantastic. Um, so I think one of the biggest takeaways for me is that from your book is that the media's characterization of these protest movements for the last 60 years, going back to the earliest parts of the civil rights movement, to today's protests against police violence, has been to call them riots the moment anything gets broken. But you recast them throughout the book as rebellions. Is this more than a matter of just a white perspective versus a non-white one? And, and how do you feel like that affects the way that the, the population as a whole perceives these protest movements. Yeah. So terminology here is really important for a number of different reasons. I mean, one, the people who actually participated in this form of violent protest, that is, you know, who threw rocks and bottles at police and burned stores and looted did not for the most part, see their own actions as rioting, um, but as rebelling. I mean, in my home state of Michigan, the events of Detroit in July 1967 are not remembered as the Detroit riot, they're remembered as the Detroit rebellion. And so part of the use of the term is to understand how people who felt they had no other recourse but to engage in this form of collective violence to embrace these violent tactics um, understood their own actions rather than imposing a, a kind of set of terms or a view on them. But even more than that, I think there, there have been really serious policy consequences in the use of the terminology. So, you know, beginning with Harlem in 1964, which was the first kind of major incident of, of urban disorder after a 15-year-old a, a Black high school student was killed by a New York City police officer, residents in, Har in, in Harlem erupted for um, several days, burning buildings and, and looting stores, you know, following the, the kind of typical pattern of um, of violence. And instead of recognizing that, you know, the underlying causes um, of this protest were shared uh, with the with the same grievances of the civil rights movement, that is, you know, that, that these these this political violence was a call for an end to uh, police brutality, uh, protection against white supremacist terrorism, really full political and economic inclusion in American society through jobs and expanded educational opportunities and housing, President Lyndon Johnson and others labeled this, these actions as, as a riot, as criminal, as senseless, as tied to problems of juvenile delinquency in, uh, in low-income communities of color. And in labeling this political violence a riot, then the only solution becomes policing. The only ex ex solution becomes the expansion of police, which is, of course, what 
residents are rebelling against in the first place. So we've been kind of trapped in this, this policy cycle ever since. And, and one of the things I really attempted to do in the book is to take the grievances that led people to pursue this course of action seriously so that we might be able to embrace a set of a different set of policy assumptions that might actually get to root causes and in the process might create a more equitable and just society. You depict the rebellions throughout and and you know for folks who haven't read the book too for me I, I'll digress for just a second too so folks know where where I'm coming from I mean, you go into so much detail in some of the original protest movements from the 60s and talk about people who were killed by police in that era whose names we don't remember you know now so much we know so many not all of the names obviously but many of the names because of social media because of better news coverage we know the names of black people who were killed in police by, by policemen uh, officers that happened all the way back to the 60s we don't know their names anymore and so there is a pretty consistent through line in this the pattern has just continued to repeat itself their pro what they're protesting against may have changed but it it's it has been very consistent over nearly 60 years and you depict some of those earliest protests even in the same way um as we having some of the same causes protests we see today which is they're not spontaneous outpourings of anger but these are community responses to long-term issues of how local authorities are policing black neighborhoods. Can you talk a little bit more about that history and why this isn't just, oh, the black neighborhoods are, are violent. It's that, no, this is a response to what is being to really disparate treatment of people living in predominantly black neighborhoods. Right. Exactly. I think, I think that's really important. You know, uh, rebellions emerge after decades of nonviolent direct action protests, demonstrations, lawsuits, uh, petitions, pickets challenging racial discrimination and seeking greater accountability and, and protection from, as, as you said, Keith, local authorities. And um, absent any changes, you know, after decades of protests, then the, the, the logical response to especially police violence um, becomes embracing violent tactics um, out, of, out of despair and out of frustration and in an attempt to get um, authorities to actually listen to the, the grievances um, of communities that are calling for um, different resources outside of policing and surveillance that are calling for better school systems and jobs and uh and protection against slum landlords and uh improvements to public housing projects you know basically fundamental human needs um that are that are consistently rather than being addressed at the root managed by um by police uh by through the systems of policing and surveillance and incarceration um and you know in the most recent examples of political violence that we saw and i think one thing that that one trend we can note during the 60 year period is that the protests themselves have become more nonviolent where mm -hmm. police violence has kind of sustained itself i mean in the in the 60s and 70s rebellions began uh with usually with violent encounters between police and especially young black residents um and you know beginning with ferguson in 2014 most of the violent protests happened uh, at peaceful vi vigils and 
what what had been nonviolent protests until police showed up with tear gas and riot batons and started beating demonstrators, some of whom then responded with violent tactics of our own. So I think that's one of the things that's that's really important in a through line from this the period of the civil rights era to today is that you know it's not as if the rebellions are begin with communities the rebellions begin in response to some kind of police action or police violence or a, in the case of Miami in 1980 and Los Angeles in 1992 a miscarriage of justice when a when an act of blatant police brutality or violence um you know, is 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 not recognized or, or the officers involved are not held accountable as, you know, we saw with the acquittal of the four officers who beat Rodney King in the first viral video of a violent police en encounter that, you know, millions of, of Americans consumed on the nightly news. Um, and so it's 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 these more exceptional in incidents that um, that spark rebellion today versus the policing of ordinary and everyday activity that we saw um, in the in the 1960s and early 1970s. So I'll play devil's advocate for a moment here. How do you respond to people who say, and anyone, regardless of role, who, who talk about, who say that, okay, there's more crime in black neighborhoods, so therefore we need more policing, or, or even argue, as Hillary Clinton argued when she was running for president too, well, black residents were asking for more policing in their neighborhoods, which to me has a little bit of a ring of the blaming the victim, but I also have never really investigated the question. So what's, what is your response when that comes out? So I, I think that underscores, you know, the, the question of why is there more gun crime and violence um, in especially low-income communities of color, I think underscores some of the larger points that I'm trying to make in the book in terms of misguided domestic policies of the post-civil rights period, which is, you know, we should be asking the question, why is it that in the neighborhoods that are the most over-policed with the highest rates of incarceration, young people are more likely to die either by each other or by a police officer? And so I think in our most vulnerable communities, the decision to invest in policing and surveillance in prisons at the expense of, again, <laughs> jobs and housing and educational opportunities has not actually fostered public safety. And so I think now is, is the time. Um, and my research, both in America on Fire and my first book, I think really emphasized this. This has been a, a failed domestic policy path and we need to embrace a new set of solutions. I mean, with respect to the, the, the argument that, well, black communities called for, you know, are calling for tougher sentences and more policing and, um, and, you know, and we gave it to them. I think the question I would ask Hillary Clinton, and she actually made this argument during the 2016 presidential campaign, essentially defending um, the Clinton, her, you know, President Clinton and her stance on the crime bill and super predators by saying, well, this is what the black community wanted, as you said, Keith. You know, the, the question is, why is it that of all the demands that black people have been making, uh, you know, for hundreds of years, but certainly, you know, in the past 60 years, why is it that the one thing that they get are, is more policing and, 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 and prisons and tougher sentences and all of that? This is this is a dynamic that um, that, that myself and and uh, two colleagues of mine, Beshla Weaver and Julie Kohler Hausman, have labeled selective hearing, and that is that. When, <laughs> that no, it, it's true. When when black communities call for better policing, policymakers hear more policing. Right. And in all of the social programs 
that Black communities called for alongside better policing tactics in their communities. Because of course, if you're living in a, in, a, in a community that's riddled by gun violence and drug abuse, you want, to, you, know, you want the resources and the tools to foster public safety. But we also know that you know, Black Americans tend to be far less punitive than their white counterparts and tend to em embrace a prevention model that's rooted in social welfare programs. So, um, so again, you know, why is it that that's the one thing, you know, of all the demands, <laughs> right? What what black people have gotten are police and prisons. I feel like you've talked about that in multiple of the cities that you uh, that you go where you give longer histories in the book, like Cairo, Illinois, and York, Pennsylvania, where there were more grassroots efforts. I may have even forgotten one of the bigger ones, but there were grassroots efforts to try to provide, to try to fill some of the gap left by the government to try to provide some of these social programs. And they were largely undermined by white authorities, either explicitly, like I think Cairo was probably the worst example where it was essentially run by white supremacists. Although you had a white supremacist who was mayor or police chief in York, Pennsylvania, which, you know, I, I was like furiously Googling, wait, are these people still in power? And yeah, I mean, until fairly recently, actually, a lot of them still had quite a lot of say over public policy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's, you know, the, the Cairo example, I think, is is kind of a warning to us all about the dangers of um, of, of of racism and, and the fact that, you know, racism uh, can 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 kill an entire community in yeah. Cairo, essentially um, that, you know, the white white residents had a slight edge over um, over the number of black residents in the town, the southernmost tip of Illinois, basically the south. Um, were essentially, you know, for, between 1969 and 1972, uh, the the white establishment in Cairo, which was deeply embedded in in white supremacist mob violence um, and supported by the police department, uh, terrorized the the black residents in the community, who in turn fought back, facing you know no protection from uh, the white establishment, and essentially locked out of political and economic power in the town began to fight back both with, um, by shooting, by returning uh, gunfire in, in, in gun battles um, in the town, but also in boycotting the white businesses there. And rather than actually just concede to black residents' demands um, and say, okay, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna begin to open up um, public jobs, we're gonna begin to a robust school desegregation program, we're gonna improve housing stock for all Caroites. The white establishment um, instead allowed businesses to close. The economy in Cairo tanked, and uh, and 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 anyone who could, who was mobile enough to leave, ended up leaving the town. And now it, it, the town is majority black. It's considered um, a ghost town. But instead of you know basically extending equal rights and equal <laughs> economic and political resources to black residents, the white supremacists in power chose white supremacy. And the town died as a result. And I think, you know, Cairo is ex exceptional. Cairo is, an, is exceptional in its violence, but it's also, you know, again, just indicative of the lengths to which or what American racism can look like in practice. It will kill us all um, in the end. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So I live in the suburbs outside of Wilmington, Delaware. Wilmington had one of the rebellions. You mentioned I actually looked in your list at the end of all the rebellions and ended up because I was just, a, just aware of it as local history because we had, for listeners who don't know, the longest National Guard occupation of any American city actually took place in Wilmington, Delaware, in the wake of the rebellion after the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. But one of the interesting things that has the city, I think, has still never really recovered from because we have very high crime rates, very high murder rates per capita in a very small city, um, is that Wilmington City, and forgive me if you know this already, but there are no city schools. They actually have integrated the school. They broke apart any city schools, and kids from the city are now, they've, they've essentially split the city into five of the suburban school districts. So if you are a child, of, regardless of where, if you grow up in the city, you become part of one of the suburban school districts, and they will, you know, those kids have... Um, there are some local schools to them, but many of them are sent out to schools in the suburbs, so they obviously have longer commutes, they're getting up earlier, they're getting less sleep. It, I have always struggled with, is this an understanding, is this a good solution, is this a bad solution? If we just, did the city simply punt on the problem and say, well, we're just going to hand you off to the suburban schools rather than make a real investment in the city, in a, the beginning of an infrastructure, because that's how it, that was how it felt to me coming in is that, wait a minute, why... Why do we get our own schools? Because we're in the suburbs, because we're white, because we pay more, you know, we have higher property, so we have more property taxes, because that's how we fund everything in Delaware. So I, I'm curious if you've looked at this, and this may be more from your first book too, but what, what is your feeling on the way to address the huge, there is just an education gap between black and white, between urban and rural across the country? Yeah, I think in some ways, Keith, you just answered the question. I mean, it's really about, you know, as you put it, Punting the problem has been the strategy um, and, and increasingly private privatizing mm-hmm. uh, for low income Americans, um, you know, basic social welfare services and educational opportunities has been the kind of model post civil rights. And I think instead we need to begin to redirect our investments. I mean, going back to what the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders or the Kerner Commission called for, you know, in 1968, which Lyndon Johnson um had commenced during the Detroit Rebellion in 67 to evaluate the causes and solutions to the uh, the rebellion that had plagued so many cities during his pregnancy and the, uh, his presidency. <laughs> and the Kerner Commission said, um, the Kerner Commission said, if we if we're serious about you know ending rebellion, if we're serious about addressing these issues, we have to go beyond the war on poverty. We need a major structural intervention. We need a massive infusion of resources. That you know would be an overhaul of public schools, job mobilization of the public and private sector for job creation, 
and addressing the dilapidating and increasingly deteriorating housing conditions in many communities. And I think, you know, in the case of Wilmington, um, the, 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 the long-term solution is in actually investing in robust school systems in low-income communities rather than um, consistently, you know, shipping kids outside to other communities, which also introduces a host of social problems and doesn't, you know, I mean, I, I haven't seen the exact figures from Wilmington, but um, we know that, you know, that it doesn't necessarily ameliorate the achievement gaps that exists between black and white um, school students. I think so much of it has to do with investing in robust programs within communities uh, themselves rather than, you know, continuing as you as you said so eloquently to punt the problem off. Yeah, I had to go with a sports analogy, obviously. <laughs> how I think. So one other thing I thought was interesting reading your book at, at a, in I just read it a few weeks ago, that at this point was we keep hearing and you quote so many people in the book over decades saying that real change, implementing real change in how the United States polices its citizens, notably its BIPOC citizens, will take time. It will take patience. You can't push for too much. Seems to have taken no time for various state governments to ban the teaching of critical race theory, which they may not actually even know what it is, but it's getting banned all over the place in schools where it's probably never even actually been taught. And so I just wonder, like, how should we even reconcile this contradiction or is it just to me is it just another should we just accept as another manifestation of there's still white supremacy throughout governments particularly throughout the south and the midwest well there's still that that is certainly true i mean i think i think one lesson that we can draw from the policies that i lay out in in both of my books is that you know that that sets of decisions that you know these outcomes are the results of sets of decisions that can be easily undone. And I think you know one thing that we have seen historically is is that uh, progressive movements and and policies that might foster greater racial equity and justice are often more scrutinized and and um, and it's an uphill battle to realize versus policies that kind of continue. Um, the, the practices of white supremacy or, or the ways in which racial hierarchies have structured American political and economic uh, institutions historically. And I think, you know, in order to bring about the kind of changes that uh, tens of millions of people were calling for last summer when they took to the streets, it's gonna be a battle of, of hearts and minds. And I think that the, that most Americans, I mean, what's true from the, the protests and, and polling and also the, um, the, the response to the, po the policies of the Biden administration is that most Americans want to see um, a different form of government governance. And now the minority is, is kind of holding on to uh, what they can in order to retain their power. And a big part of that, of, of course, is teaching the history of um, racial oppression and exploitation, which is what I think people are talking about when they're saying critical race theory um, in a moment when the demographics of the United States are changing dramatically. So, you know, in many ways, this is um, by, by 2050, they're, they're predicting that that white people in the United States will be the minority. And I think, you know, the, the recent attack on critical race theory and the banning of the teaching of racial injustice in our history, which has been central to U.S. history um, historically, isn't it is kind of the the last attempt to to retain that. And it remains to be seen ultimately, um, you know, where we're going to end up with that. Although I'm I'm confident that um, that 
ultimately the right side of history will prevail and that we will finally realize the founding principles of um of, of equality and justice and freedom of which this this country was based and that does not uh that vision of what America is, is not about um, a white supremacist republic, but um, a, a society where all people are created equal and, um, and enjoy freedom. Well, I am the, uh, I'm the parent of a teenager too. And one of my hopes is that if I told her, you are not allowed to learn about subject X, the first thing she's going to do is go on the internet and Google it. So I'm hoping there are kids everywhere now looking up critical race theory to figure out what it is. So maybe, maybe there's still some, they're, they're going to save us all. Um, I love that. So one of the other things I thought was interesting from the history that I specifically learned from America on Fire was how many of those protest movements I don't know if it's fair to say they took off or they gained legitimacy, but it was when white activists, even I'm thinking of the North Carolina A&T protests, where students from local high schools, many of whom were white, started to join the protest. And then it was almost as if the politicians said, oh, well, now now they're involved. Now we have to start to pay attention. Um, I mean, one, do you t tell me if you think that's an unfair characterization. And two, do you think, to what extent do you think that's still true? Am I wrong to look at what happened last summer and be glad we're starting to see some signs of change, but at the same time, it's, well, yeah, but there were a lot more non-Black people out in the streets too. Is that why authorities finally listened? I think it's actually a combination of the two. I mean, I, I think I think the coalitions are really important. I mean, you know, those coalitions, as you mentioned, are part of what led to the success of the civil rights movement. And what's really exciting, I think about, um, you know, where we are today in terms of movements for social justice is that, the you know the, the younger generation is mobilized and thinking about approaches to governance in entirely new ways you know we're seeing i think really exciting alliances between labor activists black lives matter activists um climate change activists lgbtq plus activists who all came together and realized that the problem of police violence it, you know connects to many of the the issues that that they care very much about and these types of coalitions again were central to the civil rights movement i also think and this goes to um you know some of the work at the heart of america on fire is that you know violence violent political protest has an important role to play and has played an important role historically in the movement for um for so for social and racial justice i mean martin luther king himself understood this he understood that you know that that uh violent protests that riots um you know were partially responsible for the success of his own branch of non-violent direct action protests because they su they suggest a certain type of coercion if if the demands of the nonviolent protests aren't met. And I think that the the violence that we saw in the summer of 2020, although the vast, vast, vast majority of the protests were entirely peaceful, but I think the fires themselves last summer helped to speed up these conversations about um, police reform and turn systemic racism into a buzzword. So, you know, it's a combination of the the broad swath of people who participated, the fact that we saw, and this is, I think, a marked difference from the earlier period, you know, we saw um, both the property destruction happening, not in uh, in Black communities, but in, road, you know, on Rodeo Drive and Fifth Avenue in New York. I mean, people uh, looted and burned luxury stores. Um, so they're happening in different communities. And, and many of the nonviolent demonstrations for Black Lives Matter happened in majority white um, communities. So, 
you know, I think that the, the sheer number of people who are clearly invested in bringing about a more racially just society and addressing the problem of police violence um, in a meaningful way, who were outraged by the, the murder of George Floyd, um, coupled by the, the violent protests that really got authorities' attention, led to um, this now conversation that we're beginning to have about police reform and, and, and the future. Of, um, of law enforcement in the United States. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. My last question for you, and, and this, uh, I'll try to make this as open-ended as possible, but I, just from my own experience, I read um, Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt's book, Biased, last summer. So right, it was, I mean, it came out at sort of the right time too. And you know, and for folks who haven't read that, it, she talks a lot about just un, racial, bi- hidden racial bias, but a lot of it in policing as well. And so after that, I started to just reach out to local officials. Nice thing is living in Delaware. I'm like three degrees separated from everybody in government. So it's very easy to send an email, call an office and, hey, what are we doing on XYZ? Other than that, though, are there things you suggest to people who want to be more involved, who want to be more active? I myself feel very late to this. It's a level of activism that I never had at all in my life because I didn't have to, right? I was, I'm a straight white guy. I don't have to worry about these things. And finally got to the point in my life. It's like, no, actually that's wrong. There's a civic responsibility here. Um, and you know, short of like, I, you know, me, it could be things you recommend people read. It could be to groups to join particular organizations you found useful. What do you direct people who, especially when they've, if anyone who reads America on fire, if you're not moved, if you're not angry, I'm going to question how closely you read this book because it is a 60 year history of injustice and violence that should make your blood boil. It certainly did mine. Well, I think, you know, especially in this moment where so much of the history, you know, the tradition that America on fire is is a part of and, and contributes to is under attack. It's really important that we um, that we understand the history of, of racial injustice again, so that we might be able to better recognize how we got to this point and then envision a, a better future. I mean, for me, you know, history is a is a guide, but also helps us think about you know, alternatives and, 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 and how to build again, um, a better society. So, so that's one. And I think the most promising, uh, approaches to public safety are emerging at the community level. They're not, um, and, and, and they're, and they're looking beyond the police. I think that, um, we're increasingly see, especially seeing, especially in communities that are particularly vulnerable to crime and, and gun violence, um, survivors coming up and forming mutual aid societies, and community organizations to support one another. One of my um, favorite um, organizations is called Advanced Peace, and it started uh, by an amazing visionary named Devon Bogan out of Richmond, California, and it's expanded to Sacramento and Stockton, and most recently New York City, where essentially um, older, mostly men of color who have been either incarcerated or um, involved in gun violence or victims of gun violence work with young men in communities who are especially vulnerable to shooting somebody else or getting shot 
um, and provide them mentorship and 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 support um, and training programs and jobs to 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 really address the problems of gun violence in meaningful ways. And Advanced Peace has already had. Um, you know, demonstrated success in the cities where it's operated in reducing gun violence, which is precisely why it's now expanding to New York City. And again, I think we need to embrace these types of community models if we're serious about um, about addressing the 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 problems of police community tensions and also public safety. And I guess the last thing I'll say, and this was related to the history, is that we know that that policymakers don't make changes out of the goodness of their heart, that it takes, <laughs> you know, sustained organizing, it takes protests. And so I just hope that we continue to keep the momentum on no matter what policies you support. But it's really important that we hold our elected officials accountable and that we get out there and protest, that we write them letters, that we sign petitions, that we support lawsuits that, that, that are going to force them to make the reforms and changes um, that we'd like to see. So we can't just, especially at this point in our history, we can't just continue to sit by. We have to continue to take action. My guest today has been Dr. Elizabeth Hinton. She is a professor at Yale in the History and African-American Studies Departments. Her new book, America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s, is out now from Liverlight and W.W. Norton. It is excellent. I highly recommend it. Dr. Hinton, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend. And if you do listen via iTunes, we always appreciate those five-star reviews. I've seen some of the comments and some of the great ratings you've left for the Keith Law Show so far, and I want to tell you I really appreciate it. Please stay safe, everyone. And if you haven't, go get that vaccine. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.